Take your Bible, if you will, and find your place at Philippians chapter 4. We're studying through the book of Philippians, and I told you that last week's message was supposed to be a single sermon that I broke into a two-part message. And I intended to bring that second part today and have it finished. But as I was studying this week and preparing my heart, I decided that this is not going to be a two-part message. This is going to be a three-part message. And so if you really want to know how to be calm, you've got to come back next Sunday to find out the last aspect of what it means to have an inner calm. And um, next week, we're going to talk fuller and more, in more detail about the word calm using each of the letters of the word as an acronym and just a memory tool to help you learn how God can bring to your heart a calm. I want to read beginning in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, six verses. Just follow along with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. This past week, I was watching the Weather Channel. I know that that makes me old. At least that's what the young people say. If you watch the Weather Channel, that means you're old. But I was watching the Weather Channel specifically because I was interested in Hurricane Laura and watching it. It was moving closer uh, to shore and coming on shore in Louisiana. Now, if you've watched any of the Weather Channel, you know that whenever they have one of these storms coming like this, they position reporters or meteorologists in the pathway of the storm. And then they report what they're experiencing as they're going through the storm. Well, I watched it as long as I could on that evening, and it wasn't going to come ashore until well into the early morning hours, and I couldn't stay awake to see it actually come on shore alive. But the next morning I got up interested to find out what had happened, what was going on, and I tuned in to the Weather Channel, and they were playing some replays of what had happened the night before, the early, really the earlier that morning. And as I was watching it, I was struck by one particular reporter. It was a lady, uh, and she was standing out in the wind, this violent wind of this hurricane. The rain was falling torrentially around her. Everything behind her was blowing sideways. And she was hunkered down. She was leaning into the wind, just trying to keep her feet under her. Uh, she had one hand. She was holding uh, the, the, the head, uh, the covering for her head that was connected to her jacket so that it didn't blow off. In the other hand, she was holding a microphone. And she's out here trying to talk in this hurricane and tell us what it's like. Of course, we can sort of see what it's like, but tell us what it's like being out here in this hurricane and, and what's coming next and the wind is whistling across the microphone and you, know, you can hear all of that going on. Suddenly, something happens above her. Glass breaks, I assume. And whether it was a window above her or whether it was something else that was glass, it broke and it began falling in, in you know, big pieces toward her and the wind was then turning it into a projectile, blowing it past her. And 
Obviously, she shrieks, and she runs towards the camera. As she gets closer to the camera, suddenly the wind stops. Not the wind out where the hurricane's going on, but where she is in this little cubby hole, the wind stops. Where they had placed the camera was where the wind couldn't affect it, where the rain couldn't affect it. And she ran toward the camera into that place where the camera had been placed, and now the wind is no longer affecting her. The rain is no longer hitting her. You can hear her talking without the wind. She's no longer leaning into the rain. And I thought to myself, you know, that's a pretty good example of the kind of calm that God wants to bring to every one of our lives. That kind of a calm. He doesn't promise that he'll take away the hurricane. He doesn't promise that the violent winds and the torrential rains will go away or that there won't be dangers blowing past you out there in the storm. But what he does say is, if you'll run to me, there is a place of calm. There is a place of safety. There is a place of shelter. And God wants to bring that kind of an inner calm, C-A-L-M, an inner calm to every single one of our lives. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the psalmist and some of the things that I've read in the Psalms through the years of reading the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or Psalm 62, verse 7, in God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Or Psalm 62, verse 8, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And then he uses that little musical term for a pause, selah. Stop and think about this for a moment. Or Psalm 71, verse 7, I have become as a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. And I could go on. You can take your concordance, your Bible concordance, and just look up the word calm. Excuse me, look up the word refuge. Or or look up the word shelter. Or look up the word wings. God hides us under his wings. He shelters us. He gives to us a refuge. Like that reporter running toward that camera ran into the refuge where she was safe from the storm that was raging all around. You and I can run to the Lord and we can find an inner calm that you cannot have any other way. In the verses of scripture that we read this morning in our text today, There are six imperatives that are given to us that deal with this inner calm. These six imperatives are like bullet points of a presentation. If you've ever seen a PowerPoint presentation where they bring up one point after the other, they're like bullet points of a presentation. Two of them we saw last week. The first imperative was to rejoice in the Lord always. The second imperative that we looked at in the last message was let your gentleness be known to all men. If you didn't hear that message or you want to hear that message again, you can go to our website. It's free, lmbc.org, and you can watch that message again so that you can catch up with this message series about how to have this calm in your life. Today we want to look at that third bullet point. We want to look at that third imperative that's given to us, and it's given to us in verse 6. And that third imperative that's going to ultimately work out this calm that God wants us to have is be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Now, let me just stop here for a moment. Let me take a little bit of time with the word anxious. The word anxious, the Greek word that's translated as anxious, is also translated as the word care. 
In other words, this word can have more than one meaning. Sometimes we talk about worrying about something, and we mean worrying about something that doesn't really bother us. And then there's times that we have things that worry us, and we walk the floors and wring our hands and can't sleep at night and can't eat. You know, we use the word worry in different ways. And this word that's translated here as anxiety can be used in different ways. Just a couple of pages before this in your Bible in Philippians 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul is going to send Timothy to Philippi. And he says, there's no one that, here's the word, cares for you like him. There's no one that cares for you like him. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that kind of care. We're demonstrating that kind of care for our children. Sometimes we say, I worry about my child. What we really mean is I care about my child. That's why I'm supervising. That's why I'm watching over them. That's why I'm loving them. That's why I'm saying no and sometimes saying yes. And That's why I'm going with them. I care about them. We're not talking about that kind of care. That kind of care is normal. It's healthy. It's natural. Everybody should experience that toward people and experiences in this life. We're talking about the kind of care that becomes overwhelming and overbearing. We're talking about the care that turns into anxiety, anxiety that can be debilitating, anxiety that can be stifling, anxiety that can choke the very life out of you. So let me stop here for another moment, if I may do so, because I want to clarify anxiety for a minute. There are some people who have to deal with anxiety who need to have clinical treatment. They need to be treated by a medical doctor. I'm thankful that God has provided those kinds of resources and made them available. As we treat our hearts, as we treat our gallbladder, as we treat our liver, as we treat our kidneys, they have medications to be able to help us and to treat us. And I think sometimes when it comes to the mind, we, we may potentially at times become over-medicated. But aren't we thankful that there are medications that help us when there are chemical imbalances that lead us to a place of anxiety in our lives that need to be treated, that there are medications to be able to treat that? And so maybe you're in that category, and you're somebody that needs to see a medical doctor and make sure that you're being treated medically as you need to be treated. But I'm not talking about that kind of anxiety either, that kind that's care that we may say, I'm anxious about something, but we really mean we just care about this, we're, we're very interested in this, or the kind of anxiety that's off the charts where you may actually need clinical treatment from a medical doctor. I'm talking about the anxiety that comes somewhere in between, what, what most of us feel at times. Have you ever felt anxious in your life? I'm talking about the kind of anxiety that if you don't deal with it, and you don't deal with it scripturally and biblically, it can become a chemical imbalance. You can reach a place where you feel chemical imbalances in, in your life and in your body. You have to deal with it. If you don't deal with it, uh, then it can cause even greater problems that lead you to a medical doctor. So, so most of us are somewhere between these two extremes where it's the normal, natural care and concern and interest and worry, as we might say, and in the kind of care and worry and concern that's overbearing and that stifles our life and that chokes the very life out of us. Most of us are somewhere between that, dealing with anxiety, and that's what Paul's talking about. He says, be anxious for nothing. Actually, do you realize that that could be worded this way. Actually, it is worded this way. Stop being anxious. Don't you love it when somebody says, walks up to you and says, you just need to stop worrying. Oh yeah, right. Thanks. 
That's what I needed to hear today. Just stop worrying. You know, and that's how we probably feel when we first read what the Apostle Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Be anxious for nothing. Stop worrying. But you know, that's exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that wonderful and famous sermon that's found in Matthew chapter 5. Three times Jesus said, don't worry. Chapter 5, verse 25, he says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Chapter 5, verse 31, he says, therefore, do not worry. And then a little bit later, chapter 5, verse 34, he says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. In other words, Jesus tells us exactly the same thing the Apostle Paul tells us. We need to stop being anxious. We need to stop worrying in the excess. We need to stop worrying in a way that debilitates our lives, that overcomes our lives and can even lead to the place where we have chemical imbalances. And let me remind you that whenever God commands something, he never commands us to do something we are incapable of doing with his help. There's a difference. He doesn't just command us to do something that we can do. He commands us to do something that we can do with his help. That's why we're talking about this from this section of the book. But a lot of people deal with anxiety. They walk the floors. They can't sleep at night. Their minds are constantly spinning over all of the things that are going on in life and worried about it, over-worried about it to the place of anxiety. They can't eat. Obviously, I've never been to that place, but where they can't eat, where they can't function in life effectively because they're so filled with anxiety. Paul says, stop it. Jesus says, don't worry. Anxiety. Any of you ever had an anxiety attack? Don't, don't raise your hand. I have at least three times in the course of my life had an anxiety attack. Three times I've been to the emergency room thinking I was having a heart attack. You ever been there to do this? Like six or eight hours you're going to be there when you get there. And when you finally get there, and it's even more now, and when you finally get there and you finally get back into the room and you know, they, they take the EKG and they take some blood because they're going to see if you're actually having a heart attack or not. They can tell that through your blood. And they take an x-ray of your chest to see what's going on in your chest and they put you back in a room somewhere and maybe they hook you up to an IV on occasion and uh, you lay back there for... Uh, you know, four or five hours waiting for some kind of news and your anxiety is really growing. <laughs> you know, where are they? Why don't they come help me? And then the doctor walks in the room and he says, he says David, uh, are you under stress? And I look at him and I say, stress? I'm in the ministry. There is no stress in the ministry. <laughs> and he says, you're not having a heart attack and there's nothing wrong with you except that you're having a, what is it? A panic attack. Now, I know that there's some of you in this room that are judgmental at this moment. You just lost all faith and all confidence in me. You'll probably never come back and hear me again. That's okay. We need those seats anyway for other people that want to come. <laughs> That's all right. I used to think the way you think until I had one. And I realized that there are people in life that have panic attacks. They go through extreme anxiety, maybe not to the level of clinical a clinical need where they need to see a medical doctor, but they go through a place where they have this kind of anxiety that almost becomes debilitating. It chokes the very life out of them. I was interested to read a book by Sarah Ball. It's called Fearless in 21 Days, A Survivor's Guide to Overcoming Anxiety. 
And in this book, she has one chapter where she tells her story. I want to read you part of her story. And I can't read all of the story. I'll tell you when I'm leaving parts out. You can go purchase the book and read all the story if you wish. But this is her story. I paced my home trying to think of the best place to lie down in case I died. My heart was pounding, and I felt an immense amount of chest pressure and pain. I was lightheaded, weak, and I couldn't catch my breath. My husband was at work, and all my children in the house were asleep. My red sofa seemed like the most appropriate place to perish. So I slowly made my way over, curled up in a ball in my favorite, my favorite morning coffee groove, and dialed 911. The paramedics found me right away. A pale, shaking, hyperventilating woman on a red couch is a fairly easy thing to spot. They, they calmly assessed me and asked, Have you been under a lot of stress lately? My dramatic near-death experience was a panic attack. She continues, I was stepping into the darkest season of my life, and this was just the prelude. Just the prelude. As she continues telling her story, that one day of panic turned into a full-blown panic disorder, causing me several panic attacks a day and continuing for months. I couldn't shower. I couldn't drive my kids to school. I couldn't eat. And some days I couldn't even leave my bed. I feared going crazy. I lost total control over my body and mind, and I felt drained of all stability. Now listen to her phrase. I was afraid for my life, and I was afraid of my life. This was not supposed to happen to a strong woman like me. I was a ministry leader at church and a mom of five children who once lived happily on a diet of stress and chaos and browse Pinterest for inspirational meals. People looked up to me. I was the writer who encouraged people to stay strong in their faith. I was the friend who counseled and comforted. I was the life of the party, always making others laugh. Oldest child and devoted wife. There's no stress, is there, ladies? Being a wife or a mother, no stress at all, right? She relates another incident in this story. I sat in my messy minivan and stared vacantly at my hands as they gripped the steering wheel. I began wringing the wheel back and forth like a dish rag. A new intense thought was flooding my mind, a thought I had never had before. I'm just so tired. Let's just not do this anymore. And for the first time in my life, suicide became an option. I deeply understood in that moment that I was not fighting for peace just for fighting for peace of mind anymore. I was fighting for my life. I was desperate. She says, I hurried to my bedroom. I grabbed my Bible, flung it open. I was desperate for God to jump out and just hold me and promise me everything was going to be okay. I didn't want to read it. I just wanted it to work. This is when I had a standoff with God in my Bible. I either trust you, God, or I succumb. Your word is either true or I lose everything. What choice did I have at that moment? And then she concludes her story. And I'm leaving out many details, but she concludes her story. God led me through a journey of healing through the guidance of his word. I now live free from crippling anxiety, panic disorder, suicidal depression, and OCD. Now listen to her, her last sentence. God was faithful to renew my mind, restore my hope, grant me the peace I desperately prayed for. Grant me the peace I desperately prayed for. 
And can I just say to you today, if you're one of those that, like me, has had a panic attack, or you're one of those who has excessive anxiety that just seems to at times take over your life, that God wants to help you too. Aren't you thankful? He didn't just want to save your soul and that be the end. He wants to help you every single day of your life and bring to you a peace that passes all understanding. That's what he said. And he never asks us to do something that we're incapable of doing with his help. So when Paul comes and he says here, I I want you to stop being anxious. Stop being anxious. God's not asking us to do something that we can't do with his help. So how are we going to deal with anxiety? Well, some of it we learned last week, but let me take you to imperative number four. Because once you've heard the instruction, stop being anxious, now he's going to begin to reveal to you some of the things that we do, another of the things that we do in order to overcome that kind of debilitating anxiety. And that is we make our requests to God. That's the imperative. It's at the end of verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Here comes the imperative. Let your requests be made known to God. Just as he said, stop being anxious, he says, make your requests known to God. And so that's the next part we have to, we have to begin applying to our lives. We have to become people who are people of prayer. Now, you notice he uses some different terms for prayer. The first term he uses is a general term. It speaks of prayer in general. We're praying for ourselves. We're praying for others. The word supplication is a more specific term. It refers to an urgent request. Excuse me. It refers to a a, a prayer where we're making our request known to God on behalf of ourselves and on others. So you've got a general prayer. Then you've got a more specific prayer. But then that third term where he says, make your requests known to God, that means literally naming specific items in prayer. In other words, he's talking here about general prayers that all of us pray for ourselves and others, specific prayers where we're interceding with God about some special need that we have, and urgent prayers where we're calling out to God because we are in the hurricane. The wind is about to knock us over. Things are breaking around us. And we have an urgent request. He says we're supposed to pray. Now you say, Pastor, are you telling me that we need to practice three kinds of prayer, general prayer, specific prayer, and urgent prayers? Well, you do that anyway. If you pray, you do that anyway. He's not really giving you three different kinds of prayer. What he's in essence telling you here is that you by prayer have got to express that you are totally dependent on God for his help. I am totally dependent on you, God, whether it's in general prayer, whether it's in specific prayers, or whether it's in urgent prayers. People who don't pray are saying, in essence, I can do it without you, God. And people who pray are people who are saying, I can't do it without you, God, whether it's the general kind of prayer or the specific kind of prayer or those urgent prayers that we're praying to God. We're saying, oh, God, you must help me now. We're calling out to God. It's really an exercise of faith. If we don't pray, we're not exercising faith. We're saying we don't need God's help. But when we pray general and specific and urgent requests of prayer, we are saying, God, I can't do this without your help. And God has never commanded us to do anything that we're incapable of doing with his help. 
And so prayer is a means of us turning to God. We should be praying every day in a general fashion. We will pray many times over the course of a week specific prayers that we need answered. And there will be moments in life when the storm is raging and we're praying urgent prayers. And if we're not praying, we're not expressing faith in God. We're expressing faith in ourselves by not praying and saying, I can handle this without God. It reminds me of the little girl who was going home from church one Sunday And her Sunday school teacher had given her a little piece of paper, actually given it to all the kids, but given her a little sheet of paper. And on it, she had written the verse, Mark 11, 22, that says, have faith in God. And they were supposed to take it home and think about it and memorize that verse through the course of the week. Well, the little girl got to the house, and as she got out of the vehicle, a strong gust of wind came up, and it blew the paper out of her hand. And the little girl exclaimed, oh, no, my faith in God just blew away. But you know, that sounds funny, but there's a lot of people today whose faith in God blew away because they didn't pray. They didn't pray general prayers. They didn't pray specific prayers. They didn't pray urgent prayers. They didn't turn to God acknowledging, Lord, that you've told me not to be anxious, but the only way I can not be anxious is that you come to me and you help me in my time of need. And in the process of not praying and depending only on themselves, their faith in God got blown away. God says, I want you to pray. When there's these moments in life, when your life is turned upside down, when there's these moments in life when everything is good, I want you to pray, I want you to pray, I want you to pray, and I want you to take all of these things about which you are anxious, and I want you to cast your, what's the word? Cares on me. Because I care about you. I care about you. And did you notice something about these prayers? Verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing but in everything. Will you notice he says, be anxious about how many things? Nothing. Nothing. But we're to pray and have supplication. Our request made known to God about what? Everything. Everything. Do you see these polar opposites? We're not supposed to be worrying about anything. I haven't gotten there yet. So if you're looking for the perfect example, you'll have to look to Jesus. I'm not there yet. Obviously, if I've been for panic attacks to the hospital three times, not recently, but in previous years, I'm not there yet. Got to look to Jesus. But he says, don't worry about anything. Stop being anxious about anything and everything, everything, general, specific, urgent, everything you, you bring it to God because God is the source of your help. And if you do without prayer, you're doing without the help of the almighty God. But now notice carefully what he says in the middle of this. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Now notice the next two words, with thanksgiving prayer without thanksgiving are you with me everybody with me prayer without thanksgiving is little more than complaining to god about all the things we don't like or understand we we like to pray and say oh god i don't like this and i'm not happy about this and would you change this and would you fix this and would you do that and there's no thankfulness that is the heart of the prayers we pray And we're just complaining to God about the things we don't like or understand. Thanksgiving shows that you trust God even when your circumstances are out of control and they're making you anxious. You're turning to God in prayer and you're saying, Lord, I thank you. I can't control my circumstances. What was the prayer we learned last week? 
What was the prayer we learned last week? Lord, I give you everything and, what's the next word? Everyone. Go back and listen to the message. Get the prayer written out. Use it every single day. Lord, I give to you everything and everyone. I don't have to be in control of everything. God, I thank you that you are in control that you are the master of the winds, that you are above and greater than all, that you have given to us your instructions on how to live in this life, that you are with me and never leave me. And you go on thanking God. You don't just complain to God. You have these general and specific and urgent prayers that are driven by a thankful heart that you have a God who is with you that never leaves you and never never, uh, fails you, never forsakes you. And you're calling out to God over and over. And the result of that kind of praying is what he says here, the peace of God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now listen, you say, well, I can pray away my anxiety. Yes, in part. That's not all there is to it. But that is in part what we're supposed to be doing turning to God with thankful hearts, calling out to him generally and specifically and urgently in prayer, acknowledging that we can't obey that command without his help and asking God to come to us and bring to us the peace of God. Now look, there's there's two different kinds of peace. There's peace with God. Peace with God is what every person on the planet needs. Every person born into this world comes as a sinner God is, the perfect sin, God is the perfect sinless one, the holy one. We are sinful people. We are cut off from God. And Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection, he spanned that chasm that exists between us and God. And now we come to Jesus, and we believe that Jesus is the one who gives life everlasting. We put our trust in him. And instantaneously, we're reconciled to God. God didn't come to us. We need to be reconciled to God. We're reconciled to God through Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We're made children of the living God. We become become partakers of that eternal life that he has promised to give. You understand what I'm saying? There's peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, don't expect to have the peace of God. Peace with God comes through trusting in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It comes no other way. But then he talks here, not about the peace with God, but he talks about the peace of God. That's the peace that comes from God to us. It settles over us. It becomes that shelter. It becomes that refuge, the wings under which we hide. It becomes that cubbyhole where the camera is while the storm is blowing and we run to him and we find ourselves free from the wind and free from the rain and the dangers that are all around us because we are sheltered in his peace. In 2014, researchers from Baylor University found that people who pray to a loving and protective God are less likely to experience anxiety-related disorders, worry, fear, self-consciousness, social anxiety, and obsessive-compulsive behavior compared to, and I don't understand why people would pray this way, but compared to people who pray but don't really expect to receive any comfort or protection from God. If you don't expect to receive any comfort or protection from God, (laughs) why would you pray anyway? But when you pray, there is a comfort that comes. Now look, I didn't say the storm was going to stop. 
I didn't say the rain was going to stop. I didn't say the danger wouldn't still be present. I said that God would put you in the hollow of his hand, as it says. And God would protect you, and he would give to you a peace in the midst of the storm. And that's what God wants to bring to every one of us. This is a peace that transcends our intellectual powers precisely because we as believers experience it when it's unexpected and when it's most impossible. God brings that peace to us, and God gives to us that place of shelter. Actually, when we talk about the peace of God, the Hebrew word, the way Jewish people, Hebrews who speak, who speak Hebrew, you know, greet one another, shalom, shalom. Shalom is an all-encompassing word, not just about what's internal, but what's external. It's about well-being. I want you to have an inner peace, and I want you to have an an outer peace. I want there to be peace within you so that there can be peace around you. Do you realize that there are a lot of people that are at war with people around them because they're at war within themselves? God wants to bring this peace to us. And notice what he says about this peace. Verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. I mean, people of the world look at it and they can't even understand it. How could you have peace in these circumstances? He says it will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And I'm glad he said minds. Because the Christian faith is not just about feelings and emotions. The Christian faith is about thinking. It's about facts and details. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind. It's a part of who we are. We have to think. What happens with anxiety, at least in my case, and I'm sure in your case as well, is where's the battle? It's in my mind. And I stop guarding my mind, and suddenly my mind starts spinning out of control. And before you know it, I find myself overcome with those feelings of of anxiety. But notice he says here in verse 7, it'll guard your hearts. You know what he's referring to? He's, re- he's referring to the Roman garrison, the Pax Romana. You know what I'm talking about, the peace of Rome? In Philippi, seven or 800 miles from Rome, where Paul's writing this letter, seven or 800 miles away is a little Rome called Philippi. It's a place where a lot of the Roman officials, when they retired from Rome, they retired out to Philippi because Philippi was a lot like, in a smaller version, it was a lot like the big city of Rome. And they had a garrison, soldiers, they had a base out here where Roman soldiers were, were garrisoned, where they were based. And those soldiers were there for the purpose of protecting the peace. Think of it this way. Take the whole Roman guard, put them outside of a city, surround that city with that Roman guard, and they're out there to protect against any of the enemies that attack. That's what he says about the peace of God. It's like that Pax Romana. Those Roman citizens in Philippi would have known exactly the picture that Paul was drawing, putting the soldiers out there to protect it. He says the peace of God will do more than those soldiers can ever do. The peace of God will keep you. The peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, our Lord. He'll guard your heart and guard your mind. That's what God wants to do through prayer. Now, that's not the only thing we do for calm. I'm going to give you the four letters and the statements that come after those four letters in a moment. But that's not, that's not all we do, but that's part of what we do. We pray. 
We turn to God. Why is it God the last one to whom we turn rather than the first one? You know, when this whole pandemic thing started uh, six months ago, uh, our staff will tell you that my anxiety level went off the, went off the charts. First thing I thought was, how are we going to pay our bills? If people aren't coming to church, people won't give to, the, won't, won't give to the church. They won't give to the Lord's work. They'll forget to do it, and they won't give. And so I got uh, Angie in my office. I said, every thermostat, turn it up. Every light, turn it off. Shut down all the lights in the parking lot. Don't let any lights shine in the parking lot. You know, we, we began looking for everything. I went through everything imaginable, everything possible. I got to find a way to sh- shut down as many things. People aren't going to give. People aren't going to give. People aren't going to give. That's how I felt. And it begins it's my thinking process. Don't look at me so self righteous. Just because you got a mask on doesn't mean I can't tell from your eyes what you're thinking. And I began thinking, well, what are we going to do to save money? How are we going to pay bills? Do you realize? How are we going to take care of our missionaries, 90 missionaries, 90 missionary projects around the world that we partner with? Those men and women are doing incredible work. We can't let them down. We have assembled at this church one of the finest staffs anywhere in the country. I'll put them up against anybody in the country. What are we going to do to pay this incredible staff that God's given to us? And I, I began to worry. I, Mary will tell you, I'm walking the floors and wringing my hands and you know, what, what are we going to do? And little by little, I began to practice what I'm preaching to you, which I don't always do. I try to, but I don't always do. Began practicing what I was preaching. At one point, I went to Amanda, and I said, Amanda, they're making government loans to, to nonprofits. Would you find out about whether we qualify or not? And a man and I talked together, and we both agreed. We both agreed we're going to trust God, not the government. We're going to trust God, not the government. And I began saying, Lord, this is your church. It's not my church. These are your servants. They're not my servants. You don't pay my salary. God pays my salary. You don't pay for the incredible staff God's given to us. God pays for that staff. You get to be a part of that blessing. You get to be a part of the investment in eternity. And I began praying and telling the Lord, Lord, I, I, I can't handle this. This is bigger than I am. I can't pay all these bills. I don't know how to take care of all these needs. I, won't, I don't know how to do this. And I began, began trying to let go of it in prayer, thanking God for how he has provided for us. We have never operated in the red. In, I'll be 38 years this December. We have never operated in the red. We have never had sufficient to pay all of our bills and some. That's God. I wish you'd have been a loud amen for that. But I got to thinking, what's going to happen? People are being laid off. People are being furloughed. Some people are going to lose their jobs. And to be honest with you, giving is not what it was before this all began. You know why? Some people are faithful givers. They're going to give no matter what's going on because they understand the principle of tithing. Other people lost their jobs. They didn't have the same to give or didn't have anything to give because they didn't have an income. Other people are impulse givers. Unless they see the offering plate passed, they aren't reminded that they're supposed to be giving to God. 
That's not a good way to be, by the way. But every week and every month, God has met our needs every week and every month. There's an elderly man who's a member of our church. He and his wife, members of our church, and they, they, they have multiple other issues. They can't come out right now. If they get the virus, most likely they wouldn't survive if they, if they got the virus because they have other things that are going on. So one morning, Sunday morning, I got up and I went out to my mailbox. This is early on. I got up, went out to my mailbox. On, I didn't go to mailbox. I got up Sunday morning, went outside, and my mailbox, the, the, the flag was up on my mailbox like this. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I, you don't get mail on Sunday. And I didn't think Mary had anything to mail that she wanted the postman to come get, at least that I know of. I don't think she's got anybody she's mailing to. So I decided to walk out to the mailbox and put the flag down. I opened, you know, just what you always do, look inside, and there was an offering envelope from this man. Sometime between Saturday night and Sunday morning, he rode by my house, put it in my mailbox, raised the flag so I would know it was out there. He's done it for the last six months. I get it. I either give it to the office or I put it in one of these black boxes around the wall. For six months, the flag is up. I put the flag down. I know what the flag means now. What scares me is that he comes by my house and I don't know it. I see the flag up. I know exactly what that means. That means he's left his offering in, the, in my mailbox. And I go out and I get it, put the flag down, bring it to church with me, and I put it in on his behalf. What are you telling me? Every time I see that flag, it's a reminder. David, this isn't about money you raise. This is about my work and what I provide. I don't have time to take you to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, but I hope you will go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 this afternoon and read the story of Jehoshaphat. You know, Jehoshaphat and all the fat, all the fat fellas. Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, king of the southern kingdom of Judah. The story is that they were surrounded by Ammon and Moab. There were too many in the armies of Ammon and Moab to fight against. They didn't have nearly enough soldiers to fight against all of these that surrounded Jerusalem. And so what does Jehoshaphat do? Jehoshaphat turns his attention to the Lord, and he begins calling out to God. Listen to what it says. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. Now listen, but our eyes are upon you. I like that. This incredible prayer. The people are praying this prayer with him. And God assures him it's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. And then next day, you know who he puts out first? In the front of the line. You know who he puts out first in the front of the line? He puts the musicians out front. Why? Because who needs musicians, right? <laughs> he puts the musicians out singing and praising and glorifying God and worshiping the Lord, and God turns the armies against themselves, and he delivers the people. Why? Because they prayed. They prayed. They came to God, and they fell on their faces before God, and they prayed. And God heard their prayer, and God 
put a garrison around them, an army around them to protect them, and they worshiped the Lord, and they said, God, you are the provider. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. And they found a calm in the midst of a war that was raging around them. I want you to take those letters, calm. I'm going to develop this further in the last message, but I want you to write down these four phrases. What does calm stand for? It's a, it's a memory tool. All it is, it's a memory tool. Put it together as a memory tool. Number one, C, celebrate what's true about God. If you want this inner calm, celebrate what's true about God. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always rejoice in the Lord. The letter A, ask God for help. The letter A, ask God for help. What does he say? Make your request known to God. The letter L, list things for which you are thankful. List things for which you are thankful. Prayer and supplication with, what's the word? Thanksgiving with thanksgiving. Not complaining. With thanksgiving to God, list things for which you were thankful. In the letter M, we'll cover this next week. Meditate only on what is good. Verse 8, meditate only on what is good. And God brings that calm as you celebrate what's true about him, as you ask him for his help, as you begin listing the things for which you were thankful and start giving him thanks for those things. And as you meditate and focus your mind on what is good, God brings that inner calm, that peace of God that garrisons your heart that nothing in this world can steal away.